Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Patrick Kiesling, and I'll be your host today. Today, we are joined by Dr. Brian Nguyen, a board-certified otolaryngologist with fellowship training in laryngology, specifically related to gender-affirming care, which is what our discussion will be focused on today. We will be reviewing gender-affirming voice care for the otolaryngologist, from voice therapy to surgical interventions. Dr. Nguyen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Patrick. So let's get started. Today's topic is part of the larger growing field of gender-affirming care. So let's first talk about some definitions. Can we review some basic definitions related to gender identity, gender expression, and gender dysphoria? Um, yeah, absolutely. I, um, I think this is something that's so important um, that unfortunately is not really covered in undergraduate and graduate medical education, but there is such a big and critical difference between sex and gender. Sex is kind of a biological concept. It's things like chromosomes, it's things like anatomy, it's things like body hair, hormones, um, transcription factors. All of those things are help define sex, which we know actually is not necessarily binary because sex is across a biological spectrum, includes intersex folks as well. And so there's a lot of biological variability and diversity within the term of sex itself. In contrast to sex, there's gender, which is the very personal, internalized concept of who we are from a gender standpoint. And all of us have a gender identity. Um, a, lot of, a lot of us are assigned at birth from both a medical standpoint and from a social standpoint, a particular gender identity based on our sex. And for a strong majority of our, our human population, that assignment of gender based on sex at birth aligns with one's internalized and developing and developed sense of gender identity. But for a fair amount of people, um, and a fair amount of people in our, in our population for millennia, for as long as humans have been around, the gender that is assigned at birth um, based on sex does not align with one's internalized sense of gender. And those folks as a broader community are kind of considered gender diverse. There are a wide variety and uh, diversity. There's a wide diversity of what that looks like. Uh, gender is a very multifaceted, multidimensional social construct as a result and a very internalized personal psychological sense of self. There are folks who were assigned male at birth and really found, have found themselves to be female or feminine or um, woman from a, a gender identity standpoint and in a broad sense of category, uh, broad sense of uh, definition, those folks kind of are generally considered um, transfeminine um, as part of who, as, as how they describe themselves. And another group of gender diverse people are folks who were assigned female at birth but uh, have developed an internal gender sense of identity to be masculine or male or a man. And those, in a broad sense, um, have identified historically, culturally, for some folks to be considered transmasculine. There are also non-binary folks too, and that is a broad sense as well as gender fluid. And there are so many different ways that people have identified and from an individual standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, from a historical standpoint, and um, that changes, that can change over time. That's very different from something like sexual orientation, which I think gets a much bigger profile in um, undergraduate and graduate medical education, as well as in the um, broader society. Sexual orientation has less to do with internalized sense of self, of gender, but more of whom we are attracted to, both romantically and sexually. And there are folks who are attracted to men, masculinity, uh, maleness. There are folks who are attracted to females, femininity, femaleness. There are folks who are attracted to folks who are neither masculine nor feminine. There are folks who uh, are attracted to any and all. There are folks who are not attracted to any kind of um, particular gender orientation and uh, or not romantically attracted to other folks at all. And so sexual orientation, like gender identity, like sex, have a huge spectra of uh, diversity and variety. Um, 
And the key thing is, uh, unfortunately, this is a podcast not really focused on these really important concepts, but it is um, these concepts do underpin a lot of our discussion today. And so I definitely encourage folks to reach out to a lot of resources and learning more about this. Um, some of my favorite resources include the GLMA website, um, Gay and Lesbian Medical Association website, as well as the WPATH website, which is the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, as well as the Transgender Law Center and National Center for Transgender Equality are all amazing resources uh, where we can take the responsibility as medical providers, as physicians and surgeons, to educate ourselves about this very large, huge community of patients that we all serve, regardless of whether or not we do gender-affirming care or not. That's great. Thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through that. Could you also uh, walk us through what gender dysphoria or gender incongruence means? So yeah, as we kind of discussed, that kind of goes back to the definition of, of being transgender, which is having that incongruence from one's internalized psychological sense of self in terms of gender identity with the sex assigned at birth. And so folks who are transgender can experience gender dysphoria or gender incongruence. Uh, The key thing that I really want to highlight is that being transgender, um, gender diverse, non-binary is unto itself not a medical condition. A lot of folks out there in really affirming social, familial contexts and environments do not have any sense of mental or physical um, pathophysiology because a lot of the health conditions that are known in the media and as well as described in um, medical education and our medical systems are related to social stigma from this gender incongruence. And so gender dysphoria can uh, is that psychological sense of distress that comes from that incongruence between the psychological, internalized psychological sense of self, uh, of gender, and the sex or gender assigned at birth. Um, and that kind of helps leads to, you know, what we do that, what we, how we can help these patients with gender dysphoria, and that um, is through gender affirming care. So, what is gender affirming care? In the medical field, gender affirming care is medical care that is provided to the transgender and gender nonconforming community. Um, and it can refer to a broad sense of medical, psychological, and social support services provided to individuals who are gender diverse. And the primary goal of gender-affirming care is to align a person's physical characteristics, their gender identity, with their sense of self, and that helps reduce their sense of gender dysphoria and helps improve their quality of life as well. A lot of these things, a lot of gender-affirming care can include a wide variety of different interventions and services, includes hormone therapy, Um, with uh, estrogen or testosterone or um, feminizing, masculinizing hormones to induce the development of secondary sex characteristics that can help align a person with their gender identity. These include procedures and surgeries, generally known as gender-affirming surgeries. Um, These include um, chest reconstruction, genital reconstruction, um, other physical characteristics including for the face, the voice, um, electrolysis uh, for hair. Um, this uh, gender-affirming care also includes mental health support, so access to mental health professionals who are really knowledgeable about gender identity issues that can help validate and support um, uh, what can be a very uh, challenging time for a lot of these folks to really come into their sense of self. Um, and it can include a lot of rehabilitation and behavioral support, including uh, voice and speech therapy as well. Gender-affirming facial surgery is reviewed separately in another episode of this podcast, so today we will be focusing on gender-affirming voice care. Why would a patient seek out a laryngologist for gender-affirming care, and what might that look like? As we all know, the voice is such a critical part of, of our identity, of our human expression, and the voice carries a tremendous amount of social cues, including gender. Not just gender, but things like age, health, intelligence, education, Um, And gender is a huge social cue that is communicated within milliseconds of the voice. And so for a lot of folks, a lot of um, folks who are gender diverse and also for a lot of uh, cisgendered folks as well, the voice is a major factor in how they communicate their gender. And studies have shown that up to 96% of individuals reporting in various studies have experienced uh, vocal gender incongruence at one point. Um, There have been studies that have compared quality of life measures in transgender patients 
um, to perceived voice femininity and masculinity and that have suggested that voice gender congruence is associated with improved quality of life. And there are um, some studies out there that have shown that uh, quality adjusted life years have been assigned and actually have been calculated for vocal gender dysphoria. In some studies of cisgendered folks across the United States, um, comparing the hypothetical state of having one eye blind with having a voice that did not match one's gender identity, a lot of folks found that um, the health burden associated with having one eye blind was not statistically significantly different in terms of health burden associated with a vocal, uh, vocal gender dysphoria. And interestingly, that study did not, uh, did not show any difference between um, liberal and conservative affiliated folks in assigning that vocal gender dysphoria. So regardless of one's political affiliation, the vast majority of these study participants found that having a voice that did not match their gender identity was considered a really high disease burden. That being said, this health condition being so relevant and uh, impactful and, and impacting on a lot of our patients' lives, laryngologists, speech-language pathologists, voice health um, professionals all have unique position of being able to significantly improve patients' quality of life with gender-affirming interventions for the voice. So how do these uh, patients typically present? Yeah, um, a lot of these patients have really thought about their gender identity for a while. Um, we are often not the first providers. Uh, your nose and throat doctors, laryngologists, and uh, speech-language pathologists are not often the first providers seeing patients with gender dysphoria for the first time. They've often thought about their voice and their gender identity for a while and have really come to understand that there is this voice-gender incongruence. A lot of these patients may also talk about their concerns of being misgendered, especially over the phone. I've had patients uh, many times explain um, their sense of safety being compromised with their voice um, and being misgendered and how they've um, actually been threatened with violence or actually have been victimized with real physical violence as a result of their voice. So these concerns are very very real, very important, and, um, and that's, that's sometimes very urgent as well. For a lot of transmasculine patients, they may um, state that their vocal pitch is too high, that doesn't sound masculine to them, doesn't sound like themselves. For transfeminine patients, they may share that their voice pitch is too low or their voice their resonance is too um, masculine, that they don't sound feminine enough for their own gender identity. For non-binary patients, um, they sometimes share that they want more fluidity in their voice or they want more of an androgynous pitch or androgynous femme, androgynous mask. And they have a lot of folks have a lot of different goals um, for their voice as well, combined with their, um, their personal and professional needs. A lot of these patients also may be professional voice users who, use their, who depend on their voice for their livelihoods or for a lot of their personal and professional careers or um, satisfaction. And so we all balance that as, as um, voice healthcare professionals. So when these patients present, uh, what are the things that you're thinking about for evaluation or studies that these patients should receive? Yeah, absolutely. So it kind of goes back to um, what we uh, learn and appreciate during our undergraduate medical education, which is a full history and physical exam. So I always ask, um, you know, a thorough voice and swallowing review of systems, as well as uh, do a full um, ear, nose, and throat physical exam, including uh, flexible laryngoscopy, as well as if you um, have the capability and the equipment at the time to do video stroboscopy and acoustic measurements at the same time. The physical exam should also focus on the neck as well. And as um, voice healthcare professionals, we should always think about and consider neck concerns and neck appearance as well. Um, because that is often tied to uh, vocal interventions or should be considered if uh, patients are um, interested in voice treatments and uh, vocal surgery uh, because that's closely uh, related to how they perceive or desire certain neck contour modifications. In addition to that full history and physical exam, you can, there's a wide variety of patient reported outcome measures that we can use that are all validated to help serve us in a um, a variety of functions that includes the VHI-10, the Voice Handicap Index. There's also a really great survey for our trans feminine community, which is the TWVQ, the Trans Women Voice Questionnaire. 
There's also, excitingly, um, a relatively new survey that called the SESVMTW, which is a self-efficacy vocal self-esteem survey for trans women. This may be particularly helpful for a lot of our um, speech-language pathologists who can really help gauge um, vocal self-esteem for patients, um, for our trans feminine patients before they embark on speech therapy treatments. There's also um, a really exciting uh, patient report and outcome measure focused on transmasculine patients um, called the VCSQ PFAB, um, which is a basically a, a voice quality of life measurement survey focused on persons assigned female at birth. And this is um, uh, exciting work that is uh, cutting edge from Dr. Nygren's group in Stockholm. And other folks may also use the CAPE V, which is a clinician rating of voice as well. Once the need for vocal gender congruence has been established, what are some initial treatment options? The WPATH, the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, has just published an eighth edition for their standards of care. And what those standards of care really um, help signify and help guide a lot of our voice health professionals, um, well, a lot of the guidance helps us um, relate to patients that a lot of different medical, behavioral, and surgical treatments are available for our patients. For masculinizing therapy, hormone therapy, systemic hormone therapy can be quite effective for a majority of patients. As we know, testosterone can um, enlarge, bulk, and lengthen a wide variety of muscles in the human body, and that includes muscles in the voice box, muscles in the larynx, including the thyroid muscle. And as we know with um, a string theory or a string understanding of, uh, of the vocal folds. As the vocal folds lengthen, increase in mass, and um, they can decrease in tension, the voice may deepen in fundamental frequency. There are also um, some studies have shown um, a really great meta-analytic review from Aaron Siegler um, that showed that around 20% of patients of transmasculine patients who take systemic testosterone don't achieve the vocal gender congruence that they seek. And so uh, other adjunctive treatments that can help with uh, vocal masculinization can include speech therapy, which is uh, very safe and quite effective um, with experienced clinicians providing support for these patients. For our trans feminine community, Unfortunately, taking estrogen does not undo the effects of testosterone uh, for some of these patients. And so um, while estrogen can be quite powerful for accomplishing a lot of um, treatment for transfeminine um, gender dysphoria, it has not shown to be effective for um, vocal gender dysphoria treatment. And so based on the eighth edition of Standards of Care from WPATH, Speech therapy has been shown to be really first line from an evidence-based perspective. There are also folks who um, uh, need surgery to help them in their uh, vocal therapy journey uh, to get them in a place where they can really accomplish those exercises and uh, behavioral interventions as guided by the speech therapists as well. So there's some literature out there that states that there is a high prevalence of concomitant voice disorders in this patient population in addition to their gender dysphoria related to their voice or their vocal incongruence. So in these patients, when they have another voice disorder that is unrelated to the vocal incongruence related to gender, how should these be approached within a, the context of also wanting to deliver this gender-affirming care? That's a really important consideration. Um, patients who have had um, vocal gender incongruence, unfortunately given you know, access issues to laryngologists, speech language pathologists in the greater community, a lot of these patients have tried to self-treat their uh, vocal gender dysphoria and given systemic um, issues with access and um, providing appropriate care for these patients, it's really uh, our system's uh, fault of not being able to support these patients, and all these patients have, as a result, established uh, poor vocal hygiene, and that sometimes results in some pathology, um, including phonotraumatic pathology like nodules. As a general rule, we try to address non-gender-related pathology prior to treating uh, vocal gender dysphoria, primarily because 
vocal gender affirmation is quite complex and requires really a healthy voice and healthy vocal behaviors in order to be effective. And so um, we want our patient's voice and voice use to be healthy prior to um, going on a journey with them to affirm their gender through their voice. Like you've um, suggested, Patrick, this population is really not exempt from experiencing other vocal pathologies, including vocal tremor in our, um, in our more advanced age population, um, presbyolaryngeal changes. And so voice therapy can really be powerful in addressing and making the voice healthier and these vocal behaviors more appropriate and hygienic prior to affirming their gender with a variety of different multimodality treatments. For this population, generally speaking, what does voice therapy look like for them? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great question. Um, I'm, um, I'm not a speech-language pathologist, so I really uh, I cannot speak to the tremendous amount of expertise that they have and what they can offer in terms of the broad arsenal of what um, these amazing professionals that we all work with can accomplish for these patients. Broadly speaking, these techniques uh, can focus on ear training, modification of resonance, vocal modeling, and other techniques to gain control over gender perception of their voice when speaking, singing, and reflexive voicing or making vegetative sounds like coughing um, or clearing their throat. And this is all done in a really healthy context where they focus on overall vocal hygiene, where the larynx and, um, and pharynx are used in a very healthy way. And so um, a lot of behavioral voice therapy techniques can focus on a vast majority of voice and communication variables, and that can really vary from patient to patient based on their goals and what, what general um, expert assessments are done by the speech-language pathologist. These include modification of um, pharyngeal resonance, pitch, um, intonation, melody of speech, intensity, and also critically, a lot of nonverbal gestures and nonverbal communications that express a lot of gender identity but are not directly related to the voice. As laryngologists, we really focus on surgical anatomical changes to the glottis. Um, there are not amazing studies and a lot of evidence that shows um, effective surgical interventions to the pharynx for resonance. And so really where we can play a role for these patients is adjusting the mass, adjusting the tension, and adjusting the length of the vocal folds of the glottis itself. For the wide variety of variables associated with gender expression related to the voice, a lot of those variables that I just mentioned, like resonance, pitch, intonation, melody of speech, intensity, volume, um, nonverbal communication, those are all outside of the realm of glottic surgery. Um, and so we really, um, as WPATH has um, outlined in their 8th uh, edition standards of care, really rely on our speech-language pathology colleagues to communicate um, and, uh, and affect and um, actualize a lot of these goals for those patients. And while we're talking about interventions and outcomes, can we talk about fundamental frequency? This seems to be an outcome that is frequently discussed with patients uh, and is related to what their goals are and what is commonly studied in the literature as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up, Patrick. Um, fundamental frequency is something we focus on a lot in the vocal gender affirmation literature. It's something that's relatively easy to measure. It's something that we focus on a lot on surgeons and patients also focus on that as well. Uh, based on quote-unquote normative data from uh, patient population standards, I think studying mostly cis folks. Pitch ranges between 80 to 120 hertz are typical for cis males, and between uh, 180 to 220 hertz for cis females. There's a very, um, I want to put a big disclaimer and a big red, big red flag on a lot of that data that I just mentioned because it's based on these patient studies that were primarily cis, and there's a, um, undoubtedly a cultural bias in the uh, measurement and publication of, of these normative data. And so um, in general, though, that can be a very vague starting framework that uh, can help inform the provider-patient conversation as patients come in. But it really is, I really want to highlight, this is a good time to talk about how 
these patient encounters can be guided. The patient population of uh, gender diverse people with the medical community and that particular relationship has been fraught historically. And a lot of times providers, including surgeons and physicians, have often told patients what to do and have often told patients what their goals are. And the more I work in this field, the more I am grateful and can really appreciate how working with this patient population really highlights one of the key you know, treatment principles that we all sign up for, uh, which is patient-centered care. And so having our patients really tell us what their goals are is, I cannot emphasize this point enough, essential to um, caring for this patient population. That's true for speech language pathologists, it's true for laryngologists, otolaryngologists, and any other provider who um, does gender-affirming care is for us to leave any and all assumptions at the door when we walk in the door and to come into that patient uh, room with open arms, with an open mind, knowing what we know with our flawed but somewhat informative uh, research and evidence and seeing what we can do to help accomplish these goals for these patients and help them tell us what they want for us to do for them. Great. I think that that provides a really excellent framework for evaluating these patients and um, approaching these interactions. So thank you for uh, walking us through all of that. Moving on to surgical interventions, let's talk about what may be indicated in terms of addressing uh, the voice in these patients and what types of surgeries we may offer to them. As, as we know, transgender and gender diverse people have existed for a long, as long as humanity has been around. And as Western medicine has continued to progress, the history of uh, vocal gender affirmation, affirmation surgery has been an interesting one with the development of a wide variety of techniques um, from um, intelligent and well-meaning folks from across the globe. And so um, for our transmasculine folks uh, who are interested in masculinizing therapy, um, as we mentioned before, systemic testosterone can be quite effective at at uh, treating vocal gender dysphoria for these patients. However, some of those uh, patients require additional adjunctive voice therapy. And, additional fo- and additionally, um, a lot of these folks often seek out um, vocal gender affirming surgery for um, masculinizing voice or masculinized voice. In, in the White Journal, there's a, there was a great study published out of a Dutch group um, illustrating a type three thyroplasty, which essentially involves paramedian cuts along the thyroid cartilage to basically um, depress, destabilize, and uh, contract in an anterior-posterior dimension the, um, the length of the, of the thyroid cartilage, thus influencing the parameter of length and tension so that the fundamental frequency can drop. And that case series was quite um, uh, promising and successful in demonstrating a drop in fundamental frequency for these patients. Um, additionally, there's a really exciting case series uh, from our colleagues from UC San Diego that was published in Laryngoscope this year that showed uh, the efficacy of intralaryngeal, um, basically intrathyroretinoid injections of testosterone, um, which accomplished uh, a lot of the, um, the vocal goals for these patients as well. And so definitely stay tuned to look um, in, in literature regarding a lot of these exciting developments um, in research for um, what, we, what we know and what we can accomplish for our transmasculine patients. Um, additionally, there are surgical interventions uh, commonly performed for our transfeminine patients and uh, to feminize the voice as well. Um, and a lot of these um, go back to the parameters of, of glottic mass, glottic length, and glottic tension. Historically, some of the oldest procedures done for uh, feminizing vocal gender affirmation include cricothyroid approximation. Um, as we all know from medical school and residency, the cricothyroid muscle is um, anteriorly positioned along the cricoid and the thyroid cartilages. And when that muscle contracts, that rocks the thyroid cartilage anteriorly relative to the cricoid. And that then ten- tenses and adducts, adducts the vocal folds. That increase in tension can then sometimes feminize the voice, and so surgeons have placed permanent stitches to permanently rock 
the thyroid cartilage anteriorly relative to the cricoid, which is why it's called a cricothyroid approximation. The studies have been variable in the results of that, and um, a lot of these procedures that I have talked about and I will talk about really vary from operator to operator. This, a, a surgery in one surgeon's hands can have a different outcome from the same surgery in another surgeon's hands. And so some, some folks have talked about how cricothyroid approximation has a somewhat high revision rate. Additionally, cricothyroid approximation can sometimes reduce vocal range, as some um, studies have shown. And additionally, um, the long-term outcomes are variable. It's unclear how long these sutures can last. Uh, further, the, um, the voice that is accomplished with cricothyroid approximation, for some patients um, within their own laryngeal behaviors, the voice from a CTA or cricothyroid approximation can be kind of mini-mousy and not necessarily sound very authentically or richly feminine, which is what some patients want. And so um, cricothyroid approximation is still done, definitely still um, done for a lot of popula um, patient populations out there. It's uh, just not as widely done now. Um, another technique is um, laser-assisted voice adjustment, which is um, historically when it was initially published uh, from Dr. Orloff, um, Lisa Orloff, it was using um, carbon dioxide lasers to induce these troughs along the lateral aspect of the vocal folds under direct laryngoscopy in the operating room, um, thereby affecting the glottic variable of laryngeal mass by decreasing mass by um, carbon dioxide laser. Um, the, the studies in that original case series, I think that was published in 2005-2006, were promising. Um, it's not widely done now by itself. Um, there are surgeons out there that use lava or laser as an adjunctive procedure to do additional fine-tuning of the voice, either in office with a KTP or blue light laser, or more aggressively in the operating room with a CO2 laser with the patient under general anesthesia. Probably the most common, um, common uh, vocal feminization surgery done for patients is a form of endoscopic vocal webbing, which includes Wendler's, modified Wendler's glottoplasty, as well as the VFSRAC technique from Dr. Hyung Tae Kim in the Yeson Voice Center. The VFSRAC technique is vocal full shortening, retrodisplacement of the anterior commissure. Um, both of these techniques um, basically uh, reduce the vibrating length of the vocal folds, uh, are often done endoscopically, where endoscopic sutures are placed along the anterior um, half to 30 to 40 percent of the vocal folds, approximating de-epithelialized edges of the of the true vocal folds, creating a vocal uh, web. And um, a lot of these studies from both Wendler's glottoplasty and the VFS RAC technique are very promising and exciting, and definitely are within the laryngologist's wheelhouse. Um, the main difference I see from the modified Wendler's glottoplasty and the VFS RAC technique from Korea is that. The VFS RAC technique in Korea includes an additional de-epithelialization. Um, while um, uh, Wendler's, most people do Wendler's glottoplasty, um, they de-epithelialize the anterior half of the true vocal folds. The additional technique that is done um, in the VFS RAC technique is this de-epithelialization of the immediate anterior subglottis, so that de-epithelialization continues um, caudally exposing a lot of that uh, raw uh, perichondrium anteriorly. And when sutures are placed, instead of just approximating the vocal folds, uh, the VFS RIC technique includes the anterior subglottis in that stitch, which um, from a theoretical standpoint, the way that I understand it, it helps um, increase the tension because there's this third anchor point that the suture um, helps accomplish. And so um, there have been no head-to-head -head studies investigating the modified Wendler's technique and the VFS-RAC technique. Um, and a lot of different surgeons do these techniques differently. For example, um, some people use permanent stitches, other people use vicrals. Some people do a supra do a supra ligamentous dissection, meaning they leave the ligamentous ligament vocal ligament down and take the mucosa off. Other people dig into go subligamentous in their deepithelialization in their dissection and suture the vocal folds um, thereafter. And the the amount of uh, vocal folds that are approximated varies from patient to patient, um, from surgeon to surgeon. In general, there was a really great study that did in silico modeling. Um, a key uh, a key 
question that this um, that this research study helped solve was how where to place the sutures along the length of the vocal folds in an anterior posterior dimension. Should we take 10% of the vocal folds and leave 90% of the vocal folds free to vibrate? Should we take 90% of the vocal folds and approximate those together and leave only 10% to vibrate? And so this paper, um, this research study was really quite powerful and did in silico modeling to determine the effect of suture placement on on feminization of fun, uh, fundamental frequency as well as sound pressure levels. And they found that there was a trade-off actually. At a certain point, the more you approximated, meaning the more vocal folds that you stabilized together approximated with a suture, leaving behind a reduced vibratory length of vocal fold, there was a trade-off where they were able to accomplish higher fundamental frequency, but at the expense of reduced sound pressure levels. So patients would have a, a higher fundamental frequency speaking voice, but they wouldn't be able to project their voice as much. And so finding the trade-off between volume and pitch, they found that putting a, a suture around the 50% mark or 40 to 50% mark um, can maximize the fundamental frequency of the given anatomy without a significant decrement in vocal power. And that has helped inform a lot, a vast variety of uh, vocal surgeons doing vocal feminization surgery. Can you talk about some of the other options for open surgeries that are not endoscopic? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think we all know that open endoscopic laryngeal surgeries have uh, various pros and cons. There's greater access with open surgery, but with open surgery, there can be a longer recovery time. When you go from clean to clean contaminated, there's an increased risk of infection. Um, And then, um, you know, with any kind of um, open airway surgery, there is always a consideration for uh, post-operative airway complications. Um, in general, there's kind of two main open surgeries that uh, we're looking at. There's anterior commissure advancement surgery, or basically a form of type 4 thyroplasty where the anterior commissure is advanced and uh, an anterior uh, posterior dimension, thereby increasing the tension along the vocal folds. I'm not aware of significant amount of um, data. I don't know that a lot of laryngologists do this procedure, so I, I can't quite speak to a lot of the data for a type 4 thyroplasty for these patients. There's also another uh, open surgery called feminization laryngoplasty with thyrohyoid elevation, which in very rough terms is basically a form of a vertical anterior partial laryngectomy where the an anterior panel of the thyroid cartilage is removed the anterior half of the true and false vocal folds are removed, sutured together to create a new anterior commissure, which is then resuspended um, against the newly closed um, thyroid cartilage window that's created. And that whole laryngeal construct is then pexied up to the hyoid bone, um, theorized to feminize uh, resonance as well. These open procedures also do have a scar, you know, as, uh, as we all know, scar placement, scar closure, scar choice, uh, can be key in, in terms of scar minimization, but in contrast to the endoscopic techniques, you know, they, these do have a scar too as well. And then can we talk about some of the surgical interventions that are meant to target neck contour, as we mentioned and we're discussing a bit earlier, what sorts of options are available for patients who want to address their neck appearance in association with their gender identity? Yeah, absolutely. So the way that, you know, kind of like what we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, the way that folks experience their gender dysphoria is very diverse and varied. Um, and a lot of patients can experience gender dysphoria on how their neck looks. Um, and that includes, um, you know, the laryngeal prominence or Adam's apple or Eve's apple. And so uh, some facial plastic surgeons, laryngologists, otolaryngologists, um, are uh, equipped to um, do what's called chondrolaryngoplasty for our transfeminine patients, which is basically a way to reduce the laryngeal prominence in a safe manner to, uh, that doesn't affect the voice. As, as we know, the vocal ligaments attach about um, halfway up from the inferior border of the thyroid cartilage, about, you know, some patients about one centimeter up from that inferior border. And so pres- preserving that vocal ligament is key in taking down the thyroid notch that's probably the primary safety consideration. Uh, from an aesthetic standpoint, uh, this 
uh, learn your prominence can be contoured in a wide variety of ways with a 15 blade with piezo uh, as well as a variety of saws or rangeurs and then broadly speaking contralingoplasty can be accomplished through two different approaches one main approach that's commonly used is through a transcervical approach using a submental incision uh, which hides the scar underneath um, the the mentum or uh, using an existing resting resting skin tension line along the neck that's one major technique the other um, exciting technique that's out there is the uh, uh, transvestibular uh, technique or transoral approach that is uh, done endoscopically or robotically and that can um, basically access the thyroid notch through a sublabial approach which uh, then has the added benefit of avoiding a neck scar um, that technique is not done as widely and probably requires um, experience in, in, in that particular approach. Can you talk about some of the risks inherent to chondrolaryngoplasty? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, risks of chondrolaryngoplasty include risks associated with any kind of open neck surgery, including bleeding, infection, injury to neighboring structures, and the most important neighboring structure that we need to consider when doing chondrolaryngoplasty are the vocal ligaments. As you can imagine, if the vocal ligaments are disrupted, for the transfeminine patients, that leads to slacking of the guitar string, slacking of the vocal folds, which then decreases tension and then deepens the fundamental frequency, which is the exact opposite of what we want to accomplish from a vocal standpoint for these patients. So Dr. Spiegel, in his paper, described a really landmark technique of intubating a patient with a flexible LMA so that um, intraoperatively one can use uh, needle localization technique and um, basically scope through the LMA to find exactly where the anterior commissure is along the thyroid cartilage. And so and everything cephalad to that needle localization can be safely taken without affecting the anterior commissure and thus destabilizing the voice. Um, additionally, also uh, I counsel a lot of our patients to um, know that because of that limitation of not being able to take away the anterior commissure or reduce the cartilage overlying the anterior commissure, that in standard contralingoplastic techniques, um, there may be residual thyroid notch. Additionally, the cricoid cartilage may appear relatively more prominent as a result of the procedure, and patients should be counseled appropriately on that. Um, one of the benefits of feminization laryngoplasty it is it is the most thorough contralingoplasty accomplished because that whole anterior panel of that thyroid cartilage is then removed. And then could you also talk about what neck contour surgical interventions may be indicated for the transmasculine population that we serve? Uh, for some folks, taking testosterone actually can induce the development of, um, of an acutely angled laryngeal prominence, characteristic of an Adam's apple, but laryngeal prominence augmentation can be accomplished with cartilage grafts, and cartilage grafts can come from a variety of different sources, um, which we can imagine can draw from our rhinoplasty literature and microtial literature from the rib, from um, cadaveric grafts um, that can help be created um, and contoured appropriately for the patient's satisfaction. Great. Thank you so much for walking us through all of the various ways that we as providers can both facilitate these interventions, provide these interventions to these patients to help with their gender congruence goals. Are there any other topics or things that you want to make sure that we mention when we discuss this patient population that are important for uh, us as providers to take into consideration? You know, one of my personal core values that has have, that have driven me to pursue medicine and to do what I do is authenticity. And I think one of the most rewarding aspects of working with gender diverse patients is this quest for authenticity, this quest for a realized sense of self, um, which is something that is uniquely and deeply human and that um, really appeals to me and I hope can appeal to all of us that in our own quest to understand ourselves and to have our loved ones see us for who we really are is something that's deeply human and connecting and is one of the most rewarding aspects of providing gender affirming care for these patients. Critically, I do want to note that we are in a um, very historic time period of tremendous backlash against the LGBTQ plus community, particularly our transgender and gender diverse um, fellow citizens, global citizens. Um, 
as a lot of you know, over 400 pieces of legislation on a state and federal level have been introduced in the past year alone, targeting LGBTQ and particularly transgender humans, citizens. And so, you know, when I first started medical school, having physicians and uh, doctors and surgeons play a role in politics was not really um, seen as valuable or seen as within our wheelhouse. But I think as we have known and seen in the past, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years or more, um, healthcare is policy and policy is healthcare and politics is healthcare and healthcare is politics. And so whether we like it or not, as guardians of healthcare and facilitators of healthcare, we need to speak up for our patients. We need to speak up for health care, health education, provision of access. And so I think it's important that as a community of otolaryngologists, that we really be there for all patients, including and especially our marginalized ones, including and especially our LGBTQ plus transgender and gender diverse patients. The other thing I wanted to mention about caring for this patient population is I definitely want all of us, would love all of us to be educated about establishing rapport with these patients, including comfort and flexibility of of using uh, confirmed uh, personal pronouns, knowing our own personal pronouns and sharing them with our patients and having our patients feel comfortable using um, their pronouns around us. And knowing that um, I think for the vast majority of our listeners of this podcast, um, a lot of us are very well-meaning and, and want to provide compassionate care, especially for our marginalized patient populations like our transgender patients. And I think it can be an ongoing journey. And at times it can, I'm speaking now to our, you know, our, our, our otolaryngology trainees, to be compassionate with ourselves um, as we learn and grow. You know, a lot of our patients will be, will, will be our teachers. A lot of our patients will tell us and teach us about how they want to be treated and how they how we best can treat them with compassion. And um, receiving that feedback can sometimes be hard. At the same time, receiving that feedback can be really um, empowering. And having that wherewithal to grow with self-compassion and with compassion for our patients so that we can be there for them is incredibly meaningful. And I just want to encourage everyone here to, um, especially speaking to our trainees here, to not be intimidated by um, the complexities of our marginalized populations, uh, patient populations, and to embrace it with a lot of self-compassion and a lot of compassion for our patients so um, that it can be a really rewarding process. Great. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. We really appreciate you sharing your expertise and your insights today. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Patrick. I really appreciate um, you having me. And this is such an important, rare topic that is very rarely discussed in residency, in medical education. So very grateful that um, your team has uh, put together this podcast. Thanks. In summary, gender-affirming care refers to medical, psychological, and social support services provided to individuals who are transgender or or have a gender-diverse identity. The primary goal of gender-affirming care is to align a person's physical characteristics, gender identity, and overall well-being, thereby reducing gender dysphoria and improving their quality of life. Gender-affirming care encompasses a wide spectrum of interventions, many of which are provided by otolaryngologists and includes care specific to the voice. Within the transgender, non-binary, and gender-expansive community, voice is a major factor in gender presentation, with up to 96% of individuals reporting experiencing voice gender incongruence at some time. After a comprehensive history and thorough head and neck exam, including flexible laryngoscopy with stroboscopy, underlying vocal pathology must be treated prior to initiation of gender-affirming therapy. Transmasculine patients undergoing hormone therapy are less likely to present with voice gender incongruence, as testosterone will typically result in growth and lengthening of the vocal folds and laryngeal structures, resulting in a deeper voice. As a first-line measure, voice therapy from our SLP colleagues can be very useful for our transfeminine patients and may be supplemented with surgical intervention if indicated. Surgical voice feminization focuses on elevation of pitch, 
with the Wendler glottoplasty being a currently favored technique meant to surgically shorten the vibrating length of the vocal folds. Chondrolaryngoplasty is also offered to transfeminine patients seeking to reduce the prominence of the thyroid cartilage to provide a more feminine contour of the neck. These surgical interventions have been demonstrated to significantly improve patients' quality of life. Gender-affirming care is a multidisciplinary practice, and otolaryngologists play an important role in advocating for and providing care to a gender-diverse population. Now, on to our questions. What is the objective measure of voice typically used to assess outcomes in vocal feminization surgery? Fundamental frequency is often the highlighted outcome for patients undergoing gender-affirming voice care. For transmasculine patients, they may state that their voice pitch is too high or doesn't sound masculine. For transfeminine patients, they may share that their pitch is too low or doesn't sound feminine enough. While there are ranges of fundamental frequencies typically ascribed to being more masculine or feminine, these should be taken into account along with the other many different ways of assessing the voice through aerodynamic and acoustic data, as well as the patient's own perception of voice and their own voice goals. Next question, what effect does hormone therapy have on the voice? Testosterone therapy has numerous effects on the larynx, including lengthening and thickening of the vocal folds, resulting in a deeper voice. Antiandrogens and estrogen hormone therapy have no effect on the properties of the voice. Last question, what is the Wendler glottoplasty and what modification has been proposed in recent years? The Wendler glottoplasty surgically shortens the vibrating length of the vocal folds by essentially creating an anterior glottic web. This involves epithelial excision of the anterior component of the vocal folds, followed by suture placement, which draws the vocal ligaments together anteriorly, preventing vibration of this anterior portion of the vocal folds and thereby shortening the effective vocal fold edges. Vocal fold shortening and retrodisplacement of the anterior commissure, also known as VFSRAC, expands upon the techniques of the Wendler glottoplasty by including additional de-epithelialization of the anterior subglottis and inclusion of that area when suturing to increase ligament tension. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for joining us on Headmere's ENT in a nutshell. We'll see you next time.